Welcome to Spotlight Conversations with voice talent and DJ Donna Reed. Donna talks music and media from her sunny linoleum-free studio. Come on in. Thanks for being a part of the studio experience. Notice Spotlight Conversations. Comments, thank you. New follows on Instagram and on Twitter. At Spotlight Conversations, if you're going to Instagram and Facebook. On Twitter, it's at Donna Reed VO. I am in the studio today with a native Houstonian that knows all of the media people. He covers this. He's covering all these media news stories in his blog, MikeMcGuff.com. It's the who, what, when, where, why, wait for it, and how about Houston media celebs. And he's been doing this since 2005. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you in the studio today. Well, thank you. And I, when you say 2005, that's almost shocking that it has been that long. I would have never thought it would have lasted this long. I can assure you of that. What made you do it? What made you start the blog? Really? I mean, I was working at uh, Channel 13 in Houston, the ABC station, and I knew that I was kind of the one that knew technology and was interested in tech stories. So I figured that they would jump into blogging and they would ask me. So I thought, you know what? I am interested in it already. I'm going to start one. So I kind of know how to do it. Sure enough, that did end up happening. I started building blogs for the station and teaching anchors and reporters, you know, how to do it, which worked very well. Unfortunately, blogging, you know, kind of went away after a few years. And, you know, now stations have jumped on to podcasts or social media more than they have blogging. But I, I, it's strange as it sounds, I think that blogging for even TV reporters is great because you can connect with the viewers in a different way and kind of share more information. Uh, but, you know, once again, they have so much on their plates these days. I think it just literally jumped from blogging to social media. It's the mm. same thing. And, and, and actually a lot of stations have requirements that they have to have a certain amount of posts a day. Oh. So that's why you're seeing that, um, you know, because the stations know that as they're losing audience to digital, they've got to combat that by being on digital. In the Bayou City, you know pretty much everyone in radio, TV, and the newspaper medium. Father of Houston TV, social media, you know it all. And I love your, your blog because I can keep up with what's going on. But I also saw you've done some work for networks and for Good Morning Britain. Is that right? Did I see that? That is right. And, and really, you know, if you wonder why you should do a blog, that is definitely an example of why <laughs> during Harvey... Uh, you know, Houston in 2017 during that horrible storm was, you know, the eyes of the world were on Houston. Mm -hmm. So everyone from all over the world, all the media outlets wanted to come and cover this. And I, out of the blue, I, I got an email on the Monday morning. You know, I thought we were about to flood the mm -hmm. day before. Uh, I go to sleep thinking I'm going to be up in the middle of the night clearing up the house and water. I wake up thank God the water had receded from our street. And I had this email from ITV and they're like, you know, we found you. Um, we would like you to help us cover the storm from downtown tonight. We have an associate press crew down there. Can you do this? I said, sure. They liked what I did the first night and then hired me on for two more nights. 
So, yeah, that was my uh, entry into the international correspondent world. And I'll say that I am uh, retiring so I can always say I retired out of TV as an international correspondent. So that's why I will accept no more jobs from here on out. And they, <laughs> and they, they knew firsthand what was going on with Hurricane Harvey because you were there to tell them. Sure. Yeah. They, and, and they were looking for any independent journalists. And let's face it, there's not a lot of people marketing themselves in Houston as independent journalists. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there are, are maybe former journalists now you know, doing something else, but they're not actively putting themselves out there. And basically, my blog was something um, that they could find and they knew, oh, well, he's already done this and we can contact him and hire him. And funny enough, I started getting uh, I got a, another international network out of Turkey contacted me and I was like, yeah, sorry, I can't work for you. I'm already working for ITV. And I started passing, I passed that off to another friend, uh, Darren Lynn, who used to work at channel 13 and ESPN. And I said, here, can you do this? And he said, sure. And he sometimes still does stuff with them to this day. So it was kind of funny from zero to 100 with the international media community <laughs> calling wow. Houston. So why do you think there's not a lot of independent journalists? And do you think that will change? It could change. That, that, that's a good question, because I think right now there wouldn't be enough here really to warrant being an independent journalist solely as your only way of making money, mm -hmm. just because there is so much media. As things change, as media outlets go away, which, you know, you never know that could actually happen, believe it or not, the yeah. way things are going. Mm -hmm. um, maybe one day, yes, there will be. It's just it's so hard to make money. There was no way I could make a living off my blog as the sole mm -hmm. thing that I do. It would be impossible. There's just not enough money there. And I have, you know, like a million readers a year or more on it. But, you know, you sign up with the Google AdSense, the money, you know, there is money. I'm glad they do it. They, they handle all the sales for you. You know, you mm -hmm. don't have to worry mm -hmm. about that because it's hard enough just to write a blog, much less go out yeah. there and try to sell it too. Right. But, um, you know, that's kind of just an automated process for me to make some money off it. But to, to live off that would be impossible. It's just not set up that way. How do you see media changing? Um, just looking ahead five well, years. I I remember being in college. I went to Baylor University and in Waco, and um, there was a professor. This is right after the Telecom Act of 1996, and my professors were very open about how that was going to change things, and they were certainly correct. I mean, the path that they told me, and I'll, somehow I remember this out of everything that they taught me. They said there's going to be massive consolidation after this. And you're going to see a lot of media buying up other media. And we really did see that almost immediately in radio. It took a few more years and then newspaper about 10 years later went through the process and there were a lot of layoffs. And mm -hmm. now we're in the middle of television doing it. There's constant mergers and sales yeah, going on as we uh, are sitting here right now. And there's a lot of uncertainty. There's been a lot of layoffs. COVID clearly did not help with that. Um, I, I just tracking right now, you see a lot of people exiting the business. And I know in some cases, it definitely is that there's a buyout or they're laying off others. It's unclear, but you hear behind the scenes that it, it's not that they really wanted to leave on their own terms. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of turmoil, especially when you have these great big companies 
And, you know, and, and, and Disney owns a station here, KTRK, mm-hmm. you know, Disney's having its theme parks closed, its movie studios shut down. So it has to make cuts everywhere to survive. And I mean, you know, you really can't fault them. But do you think some of the reporters and I don't know TV, I'm coming from a radio side. Can they do their work from home? I think technically, yes, it is proven that they can. I just don't know ultimately if it's better for the viewer when they're sitting there doing Zoom calls mm. and uh, from their home. You're not really you, you, the technology is there. It works. I just don't know. It, you know, And I haven't tried this, but I don't know if you can really get the full story always by just meeting someone over a 10 minute Zoom call versus if you had to go into their home or go to their office and you're mm. able to chit chat with them a little bit ahead of time and a little bit after you can get maybe a fuller picture of a story. But, you know, hey, the technology, we were at a perfect time for a, a lockdown during a pandemic with the way technology uh is right now. I, I don't know how they would have done it 10 years ago. Yeah, that's true. Tell me about some of your firsts in Houston media, as far as stories you were covering for your blog. Wow, there's... Stand out. There is a lot because I, I have really watched things change. So when I started, obviously, social media was not a thing mm-hmm. um, at that time. And it was almost harder to blog about the media because... <laughs> You, you know, now, honestly, a lot of it is just seeing stuff on social media. Back then, you would have had to try to reach out to the person. And, you know, I didn't have phone numbers for people at, you know, mm-hmm. the various stations. You could email them sometimes if you could figure out the email address or it was on their bio. And a lot of the times, honestly, the people can't even talk to you. They're not the, the, the reporters, the anchors aren't allowed to talk to outside media. And I would be considered outside media. So it, it does make it easier when they are on social media for them to at least put out whatever is happening to them. And for me to report on that is kind of their side of the story. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that's opened it up in a whole new way. But I think the whole advent of social media was definitely a first during the blog watching that happen watching some of the negative things to come from it even the way you know people would be maybe let go uh because they say something on social media they shouldn't Mm -hmm. i mean we just went through this recently in houston with a reporter uh just last week got on television and um spoke that her station's been muzzling her and she was going to team up with uh, Project Veritas to expose them and was fired after that. So that that was definitely, I've never seen that happen before. And now it's starting to happen. It's just uh, this week, uh, a meteorologist in Detroit did the same thing. So maybe that's the new thing we're starting to see. Is it a frustration level, do you think, on, on, on their behalf? Sure. I mean, I think after COVID, everyone is frustrated in some ways. And I'm sure working in the media, working from home, not really seeing their co-workers anymore. um, All of that can add up after a while. Wearing, you know, just people complain about wearing masks everywhere. You know, I think Mm -hmm. everyone is kind of pent up and it's like a pressure cooker. You know, there's going to be some steam coming out eventually in different ways, (laughs) I would imagine. And when you're not covering stories about what's going on in media in Houston, you, you've got a couple things going on, too, on the side. One of them is producing and directing a documentary about legendary Rock 101 KLOL. And how is that going? Well, it'll, it, I think it could put me into an early grave, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> That's That was something I started, you know, 
10 years ago wow. and then expected it to be out by now uh, because the uh, uh, didn't realize that we'd have a worldwide lockdown mm-hmm. and pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, but that has been one of the hardest things I've ever done. And but I, I can promise you it will look very good when it's finished. It has started off as a four hour look at the station and now cut down into a much more manageable time. And um, I have some great interviews, including uh, we'll have Sammy Hagar uh, speaks about KLOL, Melissa right. Etheridge, yep. Lyle Lovett, and uh, Doug Pennick from King's X, Carmine Apice, who was uh, the Vanilla Fudge and yes. Ozzy's drummer. Those are some you know bigger names attached to it that share unique perspectives about the station and overall rock radio. And I think that if you live anywhere in the country and you liked rock and you liked radio, mm-hmm. then this documentary will have interest to you, even if you never heard of KLOL, because I think the story echoes in a lot of cities. You know, there was that dominant AOR album oriented rock station. Yes. And uh, there are some crazy DJs that did wild stuff and played some, you know, rocking music. And uh, this is that story. And, and it does relate back to what I said with the Telecom Act of 1996. Why don't we have these stations around as much as we used to is addressed and we have different theories in there, but from people who were there uh, after that went down. So that's kind of an interesting aspect. And it also is a look in just at how Houston changed from 1970 to 2004, because Uh for, for people not in Houston listening to this, there have been a lot of changes here. The city has only exploded in population since 1970. And the personalities at KLOL, I mean, just a whole other group I don't think Absolutely. you can touch them anywhere. <laughs> no, that was a that is a unique bunch. Yeah. And what makes KLOL, you know, how can someone might be saying, how can you do a documentary on a radio station? You really, it would be hard to do it on a lot of radio stations. But KLOL uh, was founded by a guy named Pat Fant, who uh, he, he started the station, left and came back and helped revive it. And he was a very visual person. He had worked in film and video in between working at the station. So he thought that the visual imagery, the video, the uh, marketing ads were just as important as what went out over the air. So that gives me a treasure trove of material to work with and take you back in time through their video archives, their commercials, their um, different ads that, that really spice it up and, and it'll take the journey back to the 70s, back to the 80s, back to the 90s, just by watching it. And it's crazy how in the research for this and watching all this, I'll kind of, it's like having my own time machine where I can go back and see different things from different eras in Houston and rock music and you really get lost in it. And it's a great feeling sometimes to just be able to go back when life for me definitely was simpler back then than it would be now. You know, <laughs> uh, When it's done, when you finally get it completed, what what is the plan? The plan, you know, originally when I started was to have it on DVD and and have a showing, but that has totally changed over the years. DVD clearly is not what it once was. So now I think it should be able to get on streaming platforms and we're working on, you know, getting that done as we speak. So hopefully at this point, you know, 
I really want to get it out by the end of this year and I'll definitely have more news. And if you go to rock101movie.com, you can sign up to all the social medias and there's an email list. So if you want to keep track of the project, that is the place to do it. Okay, we're talking to Mike McGuff. Um, he is He has been covering all the stories about Houston media personalities since 2005. You're also doing something very important. Um, the Alzheimer's Association has uh, made you ambassador for Texas' 7th Congressional District. And this disease hits home for you, too, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, my, you know, I think you, you can even tie this back to the blog. Uh, in 2000, uh, well, actually, and it was in 1999, my mom had a stroke, and she was 53 at the time, and we just assumed it was a stroke. But later, uh, after that, a few months later, um, it was a, a, an Alzheimer's diagnosis, and I was actually still in Waco at school, and so I wasn't actually here. I was just talking to her on the phone about this, and no one could believe that a 53-year-old could no. be diagnosed with Alzheimer's, especially, you know, back then. I don't really think, you know, I was a, just a kid, but I, I didn't know much about Alzheimer's. I'm not sure much was known really anyway at that point in the general populace. No one could believe that was it, but sure enough, it was uh, Alzheimer's. So I uh, graduated, I got my job as a reporter in Waco and knew that I would have to get back fast um, because I was the only child. My parents were divorced at that point. So I was fortunate enough to get a, a producing job at uh, Channel 13 in Houston and moved back in with her back into my childhood uh, room. And um, the first, you know, what was the first day I get there? I checked the mail and there are already connection notices, you know, disconnection notices from the power company. Oh, because this was at the point where she really wasn't able to take care of herself. In fact, I think it was after she died, I was going through a drawer and I found where she had started writing checks to, to pay the bills mm -hmm. and uh, just put them into this drawer out of frustration because she couldn't, you know, she was starting to write it but could not finish it. You could tell it just became scribble. And over that time, I mean, she, she died by age 58. Oh, so, you know, within five years, she was gone and the decline was very swift. Now, you know, older people can develop Alzheimer's and it's slower and lasts for many more years. But in this case, and I think in most cases with the younger onset uh, group, it goes very fast and uh, it was a horrible decline. And, you know, I mean, I'll never forget. I eventually had to put her into an assisted living facility because I had to work. I had to be able to make money mm -hmm. to, to pay for everything and try to catch up on bills. And so I found a place and, you know, she was in the locked unit and I was there. I had to hire additional help during that time because the facility couldn't even fully take care of her. And so I had extra people who then could only work so much. So then I took the night shift and I was there with her overnight while she's, you know, attached to machines. And I'm just sitting there in the darkness with her. And within a few days after that, she died. I got the call. I, I'd gone home to go to sleep and I woke up and they said, you better come in now. And, and I did. And my wife got off work and, and that was the end. And, you know, I was relieved for her. It was not, you know, I, I was so close to my mom. I was a total mama's boy, 
But um, you could not wish that upon anyone at that point to stay alive, to ask them to suffer, to forget eat, to forget how to do all just basic uh, human functions at that point. And um, I, I didn't, you know, after that, I didn't want to do anything with Alzheimer's. I didn't want to read about it. I didn't want to do anything. And in, mm-hmm. in 17, 2017, I went to a social media breakfast event here and met someone from the association, said, oh, my mom died of that. And she said, hey, we could use people like you. And uh, that's how I became an ambassador. And now I work with my member of Congress who has, that's changed. It was uh, John Culberson. Now it's Lizzie Fletcher. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um we you know, work with their offices and ask for money for uh, research for the NIH. And we, uh, the Alzheimer's Association has different legislation that they want to pass that you know, helps patients. So. You were so young, too, when this happened. So that must have been, I can't even imagine, for anybody it would be hard. But you were a college student. Yeah, I was a college student, and then I got out and was at least able to start my career in journalism, which was the plan. That's why I went to school, so I was able to get a job in Waco. And I knew then I even had – they let me out of my contract early to come here because I said I can't take – I can't take care of her by coming in on the weekends. And they said, why don't you move her here? But I was like, all of our doctors are in Houston. Mm -hmm. All of our support system is in Houston. I I can't do that either. So – that's that's why I came back, and uh, I'm glad I did. There was really no other option. But I mean, that's that's a lot of growing up, and I'm thankful my wife, who was my girlfriend yeah. at the time, stuck with me, and she was helpful. And I, you know, I was like, "You're really going to enter a tough time with me here," and she stuck with me through it. And uh, in fact, I mean, there were times uh, our first wedding anniversary. Uh, my mom did get to see us get married, and that okay. was her dream. And you know, she. Her, her good friend took her and, and helped her get ready for the wedding, you know, hair and makeup. And she looked like my mom again, pre Alzheimer's at that point, because, you know, after a while we weren't worrying about things like that. And the last time I feel like I talked to her was at my rehearsal dinner or at the, the rehearsal for the wedding. And we, we went through it and she was in the audience watching and she came up to me and she grabbed my face and I, I could look in her eyes and, and see her. And she just said, you know, I love you. I'm so proud of you. And I, I feel like that was the last time I ever talked to her. That, that was even a moment that I hadn't had before that in months. So, you know. Working with the Alzheimer's Association, what, what kind of legislation are they hoping to pass as you work with the 7th Congressional District? You know, it's actually a lot. Um, The one that was really important to me was the Younger Onset uh, Alzheimer's Act, which put, you know, the the Younger Onset Alzheimer's group, there there, there was the American, you know, I'm going to say this wrong because I haven't been reading the legislation since it's already passed. But the Older Americans Act had anyone over 60 who was disabled got certain you know benefits through mm-hmm. that. But anyone who was younger, like my mom, wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. But so the, the that law would have helped or helped uh, make anyone who was younger eligible for those type of disability um, programs. 
So that that one was important to me. We've worked with a variety of things that help with training. In fact, my uh, wife's cousin works in an assisted um, living facility and, and said she has gone through that training with patients, wow. which is so important because uh, you have to be trained to work with Alzheimer's patients. It's a, a so whole different scenario. Yeah. 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 It's a different form of understanding, isn't it? Because absolutely. Because yeah, your mom probably, she did she recognize you toward the end? No, I guess no, huh? not. No, not at all. I, yeah. I, I would say I would I'd come into, she had to be in a locked unit because she wandered. And that's what happens in so many times. And, and for people who don't have the means to put their loved one into a situation like that, that's why you hear about Alzheimer's patients uh, being lost and the silver alert in Texas looking for these people because they just leave. And um, that's unfortunately part of the disease. And she would just wander the hallways, you know, almost in a zombie-like state with no recognition of anyone towards the end. Now, the Alzheimer's Association, it's been tough this year, this past year, because of the pandemic. And they usually do races. They do a couple of fundraisers, don't they? Yes, yes. And uh, they did a virtual walk uh, in 2020, um, because you just couldn't get together in groups mm-hmm. like that. I do believe that this year that will happen. Okay. Uh, and I've just participated in some other fundraising that used to be in, uh, meetings. And I actually produced a video for them just cause I have that knowledge. And we did instead of a, a breakfast meeting, um, I, shot video with the people to do the program. So that was a way to get around, you know, not being able to be there in person. There's so much that you do. And I, I, I just want people to know where they can go to so they can find out all the work that you've been doing. So if they're not familiar with your blog, what's the website? Uh, the simple way to find it is MikeMcGuff.com or, or just search for Mike McGuff minus the R and the crime dog and you will find it <laughs> on Google for sure. And uh, yeah, I do have readers from all over the nation and in fact the world, which always surprises me since it really it's grown into a little bit of a Texas blog beyond Houston. I started uh-huh. covering other things, but the fact that, you know let's face it, there are a ton of Texans all over the world. So I guess it's no surprise as they spread out, they they want to read something about home. Well, you're a busy guy. And I thank you for coming in and sharing your story today. I really do. Well, thank you. Mike. Thank you. You've been listening to Spotlight Conversations with Donna Reed. Subscribe on Apple and Spotify podcasts or your favorite platform. Thanks for tuning in.